Well, good morning, and uh, thank you for your flexibility and patience as we, we all work through all these different things we've got to do in this, uh, in this pandemic. Well, let me go ahead and pray as we start uh, this morning. Father, we want to thank you for your word, for the truth that we find here that teaches us, that renews our minds and transforms our lives. And today I pray, uh, Lord, that you will guide me as I uh, preach your word, that I will have the right thoughts and the right words to communicate your truth. And I pray for those who are hearing this, that you will speak to each heart and life through the word of truth that by your Holy Spirit. Well, thank you for what you're doing and what you, how you will use this again to transform each of us for the glory of your name. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, usually at Easter time, Wichita's Pathway Church spends money to advertise on TV and through direct mail their Easter morning service. In 2019, the church used the money in a different way. They chose instead to pay off medical debts of families in their state. They went through a nonprofit organization called RIP Medical, or RIP Medical. RIP Medical was uh, responsible for paying off medical debts for more than 200,000 people uh, in, the, in recent years. And what they would basically do is they would pay or they would buy the medical debt at pennies on the dollar. Because again, these organizations want to just get that debt paid off. And so they would sell it to this organization for pennies on the dollar. Well, the church spent $22,000 and was able to pay off $2.2 million of medical debt. And, uh, and here is the message, or part of the message that the lead pastor, Todd Carter of this church, shared with his congregation. He said this on Easter morning that year. They had already done this a week before. He said, I want you to imagine for a moment what those 1,600 people felt like last week when they got the letter in the mail. What was going on in those houses when they got that letter? You know, all kinds of things. And then all of a sudden, they realized that their debt, this debt that had been hanging over their head, has been forgiven. That's exactly what God in the person of Jesus Christ wants you to feel each and every day, that your debt has been forgiven. Well, what a great way of demonstrating the, the, the forgiveness that we have in Christ, the debt that's been paid in Jesus Christ to those 1,600 people or families that, that, uh, that, that year at Easter time. This is the message that the Apostle Paul wanted the Galatians to understand as he wrote this letter to the Galatians. They have been set free from the bondage, the debt of sin that uh, they were under. Christ had paid that debt for them and had set them free. And this is the freedom that Paul wanted them to understand. It's the freedom that Christ wants us to understand today. That we have this freedom because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so we can be, uh, we can walk in that freedom that is ours in Jesus Christ. And this is the message that we, we pick up here in Galatians 5. Remember, we, we started this series in Galatians back in September of 2020. 
And just to give you a kind of a, a quick overview of the, the letter and the outline, at least as, as I have outlined it, and that is that in chapters one and two, Paul is defending his ministry as an apostle. You recall in the first verse, he says, Paul, an apostle not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And so Paul was being accused of, of getting his apostleship from other people. But Paul says, I didn't get it from man. I got it from Jesus Christ himself. And he spends the first two chapters kind of laying out his testimony that he once was, an, uh, once was a Pharisee and he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries at that time. But God called him out of that and God revealed Christ to him. Remember on the road to Damascus and Paul was transformed and Paul did not immediately go to Jerusalem to be um, taught by the other apostles, but instead went away and, and let God, let Christ supernaturally teach him and help him understand all of his understanding of the Old Testament as a Pharisee and how Christ has fulfilled that. And now he was understanding it the way God intended it to be understood. And it wasn't until about 14 years later, he says in chapter two of Galatians, that he went to Jerusalem and became more acquainted with the apostles and began to, to lay out before them this gospel that he was preaching to the Gentiles. And he even had to confront Peter, the great apostle Peter, because Peter was giving in to some of the pressure of the other Jews to not associate with the Gentiles or to isolate himself from them. And so Paul had to confront them, and, uh, Peter, and, uh, and he talks about that in Galatians chapter 2. And then in chapters 3 and 4, Paul defends his message. One and two, he defends his ministry. In chapters three and four, he defends his message, this message that justification is by faith, not by the law. And then in chapters five and six now, what Paul is doing is Paul is defending his method or methodology. And that method is that we walk by faith in, in the Holy Spirit, not by the law. We don't keep the law to grow up in Christ or for sanctification purposes. No, we walk by the Spirit. And this is his methodology. Well, he's being accused of um, that his freedom was too, too out there, too radical, and that, that he wasn't concerned at all about the way people lived. But that wasn't Paul's message at all. His message was the law did not have any power to bring about that transformation. It was the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but the law, trying to keep the law in the flesh, did not have any, any, um, any real power to bring about that transformation. So this is the message that Paul is preaching to the Galatians here in chapter five. Let me go ahead and read chapter five, verses one through 12. We're gonna look at this, walking in this freedom. This is the first part of this two-part message. Next week, we'll look at uh, um, verses 13 through 18. But today we want to look at verses 1 through 12. Paul says this, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You've been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You've fallen from grace. 
For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I persecuted? And the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. Would that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Well, this is what Paul is saying here in the first 12 verses of Galatians 5. And I, I believe what he's teaching us in this whole section through verse 18 is that we must walk in the freedom of Christ. We must walk in the freedom of Christ. He says it was for freedom, verse 1, that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. They were once in slavery in their pagan understanding of things. But now, Paul says, if you're going to buy into what the Judaizers are teaching you, that you must be circumcised and you must keep the law as well as follow Christ, then you're coming back under a form of, of slavery, of, of bondage. And Paul says, Christ has set us free from that. And so he says, keep standing firm. Or maybe another way of saying it is, walk in that freedom. Walk in that freedom. Well, why must we walk in the freedom of Christ? Well, there's three reasons he gives in these first 18 verses. The first reason we're going to look at today, and that is because Christ has set us free. We must walk in the freedom of Christ because Christ has indeed set us free. And that's, again, what he says in verse 1. And then he elaborates on this in the, the, the next verses. But there are two areas of freedom that we have when it comes to we're free from the law. The first is we're free from the law as a means of justification. And I think verse 1 is kind of a transitional verse from, from the section we looked at before in, verse, in chapters 3 and 4. And now what he's going to go into in, in chapters 5 and 6. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. He says this, this freedom is from the law as a means of justification. Um, trusting in the law for justification nullifies grace. And it puts our trust in our own ability to keep the law or to be good enough to be uh, commended to God or justified before God. We go back to Galatians chapter 3 and we see Paul says this over and over and over and over and over again. He says in verses 1 and 2, he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you, he says. Did you receive the Spirit, that is, did you receive salvation by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the obvious answer is by hearing with faith. Paul knew these people. He was, he was there with them uh, when he was, we shared the gospel with them the first time. He goes on in verse 6, uh, because the Judaizers were saying, well, you cannot be a child of Abraham unless you follow the law. Paul says in verse 6, even so Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Even Abraham. 
is justified right by, um, by faith, by belief. In verse 7, he says, Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. And then verse 9, he says, So then those who are of, what? Who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. And he says in verse 11, now that no one is justified by law before God is evident, and he quotes the scripture in Habakkuk, the righteous man shall live by faith. And then verse 13 of chapter three of Galatians, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might be Get, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And then in verses 21 down through 24 of that same chapter, he says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart righteousness or impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. Then the next verse he says, But the scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, having been shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. This is the message that Paul has been proclaiming that trusting in the law for justification nullifies grace. It is always by faith. Keeping the law as a means of justification before God was never God's intent for the law. Because remember, again, in, in chapter uh, 3, verse 19, he says, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. It was added because of transgressions. That is, the law was given to reveal to them that they could never keep the law. They could never be good enough to commend themselves to God by keeping the law because God's, the law was perfect and they could never keep that perfectly. And the scripture tells us that we all fall short of God's standard, right? We've all sinned and come short of God's perfect standard of righteousness. Therefore, we are condemned by that law. But God, in his grace, sent Christ to come here to live a perfect life and then to give his life on the cross as a substitute for us so that, so that God would take our sin and the punishment we deserve because of sin and he laid it upon his perfect son who never sinned and he died in our place. He experienced the punishment that we deserved. And then he rose again on the third day to prove that he had gained victory over sin and over death and that God the Father was pleased to accept his sacrifice on our behalf. We then believe that by faith. We hold on to that by faith and we trust in that reality to save us, the work of Christ on our behalf. That's when Paul, what Paul says. We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ and not by the works of the law. 
And so this is what um, the message is. And so Paul is reiterating, reiterating, reiterating that when he says it was for freedom that Christ set us free, freedom from the law as a means of justification before God. Uh, Kenneth Weiss, the Greek scholar who taught at Moody Bible Institute, says this in his um, uh, worst studies of the Greek New Testament. He says, the believer is free from the law in three respects. One, first, he says, he is free from the condemnation it imposes upon the one who would disobey it. Okay, so we're free from the condemnation. Why? Because Christ took the condemnation for us. Second, he says, he is free from the law as a means of justification, which we've just been talking about. We, we are not, by keeping the law, we are not justified by God. So when we accept Christ, he sets us free from having to, have to, to be justified by the law because that was never God's intent for the law. Thirdly, then, he is free from the obligation to render obedience to its statutes. We're free uh, from the obligation of obedience to the law. Now, that may be a foreign thing to some of us, that we don't have to keep the law. That doesn't mean the law doesn't have something to say to us, but we're not obligated to it. Kenneth Weiss goes on to say this in that same passage, is the ethics of the Pauline epistles and the ministry of the Holy Spirit take the place of and are in advance upon the mosaic economy of regeneration and the objective written law. Whatever is of value for the church in the legal enactments of the Mosaic Code is found in the passages of the New Testament epistles. The New Testament is written to the church to teach the church how to live. And if there's something from the Old Testament that applies to the church, it is reiterated in the New Testament teaching, particularly of the epistles to the church. He goes on to say, um, that's not to say, however, that the great principles of conduct underlying the statute of the Mosaic Law are to be ignored. The Old Testament, even, through, even though superseded by the New, which is specifically designed for the church, it has great value to the latter. Still, it must be used with the following two guiding principles in mind. Here are the two guiding principles. First, it is specially adapted to the needs of the nation of Israel and for the time before the cross. So we got to understand, the Old Testament was written specifically for the nation of Israel prior to Christ's coming. Secondly, its legal enactments were they, where they deal with general principles of conduct that are universal and eternal in application must never be treated as legally binding upon the believer, but only as ethics to guide his conduct. So in other words, we got to understand, first of all, the Old Testament was written to the nation of Israel prior to Christ's coming. Secondly, if there are universal principles, and there are universal principles found in the Old Testament, we are not legally bound to them, but they provide an ethical guidance for us in our walk with Christ. Let me give you an example of this. The, the idea of Sabbath. Sabbath was a law legally bound, binding the Israelites, the nation of Israel. We're told in the New Testament, Christ is our Sabbath. He becomes our Sabbath rest. We rest in Christ. And so from a legal standpoint, the Sabbath is no longer binding on us. We are in Christ. However, there is a, a principle in Sabbath that we should adopt for the way we live our lives. And that principle is we ought to get rest. 
God designed our bodies to need rest, and so we ought to walk according to the principle of Sabbath rest for our life. It is something that we ought to put into practice, not only physically get rest, have days off from work, but also in our, in our spiritual work. There, uh, there is rest we ought to find. We ought not to be just going 24-7 all the time. We need time off. We need time to rest, to rest our heart and our mind as well as our body. And so there's a principle of Sabbath that we can enact in our life. We're not legally bound to it, but it's a good principle to put into our life. That's how we, then, we take the truths from the Old Testament that was written to a nation of Israel that are not specifically laid out in the New Testament for us, and we can apply those ethically into our lives. So Paul is laying out a new methodology of living out um, our faith. It's not that we're walking according to the law as a legally binding agreement, but we are walking in the Spirit, living out our faith. And so we're free from the law as a means of justification. Secondly, we're free from the law as a means of sanctification. Now let me just reiterate something that we have talked about many different times over the years, and that is um, justification, sanctification, glorification, right? Sanctification means that we've been set free from the penalty of sin. When we come to put our faith in Christ, we are justified. We are free from the penalty. Christ dealt with the penalty, and we are free from that. We no longer are under that obligation. We are no longer condemned, right? There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are set free from the penalty of sin, justification. Sanctification is that we are free from the power of sin. It's the process we are in right now as followers of Christ. We're walking out our faith. We're, we're growing in our freedom from the power of sin in our life. And so the, the, the process is that the more I submit to Jesus Christ and his spirit, the more he works the life of Christ in my life, the character of Christ comes out, the fruit of the spirit, which we'll look at in a few weeks, comes out in our life, the, the less sin has power in our life. And so we're growing in maturity. That's the sanctification process. And then glorification is what we will experience once we translate from this earth into the glory at death or at the rapture. And uh, that is that we are free from the very presence of sin. <clears throat> One day, sin will be completely and fully eradicated and we will no longer have, there will no longer be a presence in our lives. We'll be in the presence of the Lord. And so that's those three processes or three, three aspects of our, of our salvation as a whole justification. And so we're free from, from uh, the law as being a means of justification. It does not in any way uh, free us from the penalty of sin. We can't because we can never keep it perfectly. It also frees us from the power of sin. Uh, we are free from the law as a means of sanctification. Christ sets us free, not the law. And this is what Paul is now getting into in this passage. And I want to um, go through these verses um, now, verse 2, he says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, and the whole point of this is you receive circumcision as a means of somehow relating to God, right? He says, Christ will be of no benefit to you. 
And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision, again, as a means of relating to God, that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You've been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you've fallen from grace. He's saying here, trusting in the law for sanctification dismisses grace as a means of growing up in Christ, the means of maturity. And this is what chapters 5 and 6 really are about. It's Paul defending his methodology against keeping the law, but he says of instead walking by the Spirit. And here in verses 2 through 4, Paul lays out three consequences of trusting in the law or of a form of legalism. And that could be a legalism um, unto justification or legalism unto sanctification. And he, we, can, we can look at both aspects of that. In other words, for the person who's not a believer, who's looking to, to circumcision, if you will, according to this passage, or any form of the law, to justify them before God, or a believer who's looking to some form of law to sanctify them. In either case, there are three consequences. He says, first of all, Christ will be of no benefit to you. In other words, you're on your own. As an unbeliever, you're on your own to try and make your way to God. You're going to find that you can't keep the law. You cannot keep it perfectly. And you're going to fall short. But as a believer, to think that you can keep the law, to somehow grow in the Lord, to somehow, you know, whether it's circumcision or any other aspect of the law, he says basically Christ will be of no value to you, no benefit to you in the sense of helping you grow up because you're dismissing him as a form of way of relating to God in your uh, walk with him. You're trying to do it on your own. And so it says you're on your own. Um, the second consequence is that you're obligated to keep the whole law. You see, this is the interesting thing in the church today, that we oftentimes, and we, I say the church in general, we want to pick and choose things from the Old Testament or from Scripture in general and say, well, these things apply to us and those things don't. They apply to, the, to Israel, but only these things apply to we can't do that. It's inconsistent. We've got to understand uh, this biblically. If we're going to try and keep some part of the law, we've got to keep the whole law. That's what Paul is saying. You're under obligation to keep the whole thing. You remember what James says in James 2, 10 and 11, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he becomes guilty of all of it. And then he says, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, then you have become a transgressor of the law. You've broken the whole law. If you're going to keep one piece of it, you've got to keep all of it. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, if you're going to choose, and this was the problem, again, in Galatia, is they were saying, well, yes, believe in Christ, but also keep the law. And Paul's saying, if that's what you're going to do, you've got to keep all of it, not just pieces of it. And he's telling the Galatians this because, really, they haven't given in to this yet. They're still contemplating this. And Paul's saying, I want you to know up front what they're not telling you. And that is that if you're going to keep circumcision as a means of somehow commending you to God, then you're going to have to keep all of it. Every single piece of it. You're obligated. That's the rub. And, uh, and so they, 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 he wants them to understand that. That's the consequence of this. And then thirdly, he says, you've fallen from grace. You severed from Christ. You were seeking to be justified by law. You've fallen from grace. Now I want to appeal to uh, John MacArthur. 
to understand this better because I think he explains it well. He talks about both how this applies to the unbeliever and how it applies to the believer. He says, apply to the one who was really an unbeliever. The principle of falling from grace has to do with being exposed to the gracious truth of the gospel and then turning one's back to Christ. So it's a person who has been exposed to it but has not bought into it and has not put their trust in Christ, but has been exposed to it and now is turning away from it. He says, during the time of the early church, many people, both Jews and Gentiles, not only heard the gospel message, but witnessed the miracles uh, confirming, the, uh, by the, confirming signs by the apostles. He says, they became attracted to Christ and often made professions of faith in him. Some became involved in a local church and vicariously experienced the blessings of Christian love and fellowship. They were exposed firsthand to every truth and blessing of the gospel of grace, but then turned away from it. They had been enlightened and had tasted of the heavenly gift and had even been paid partakers of the Holy Spirit by witnessing his divine ministry in the lives of believers, but they refused to stand fully with Christ by placing their trust in him, and they fell away. Losing all prospect of repentance and therefore of salvation. They came to the very doorway of grace and then fell away back into the works of religion. And so if, if, if those who are reading this in that day and those who are hearing this today are unbelievers, the message is that if you choose to walk according to the law, you are choosing to ignore Christ and what he's done and you are falling from grace as a means of being saved before God. To the believer, he says, applied to a believer, the principle of falling from grace has to do with a person who genuinely trusts in Christ for salvation and then outwardly reverts to a life of legalism, of living under external rituals, ceremonies, and traditions that he or she carries out in their own strength instead of living with a spirit of obedience to Christ. He exchanges life by grace for life back under law. Life by faith for life again by works. Life in freedom for life back in bondage. Life in the spirit for life back in the flesh. It is a major matter of concern to God whether we live in outward obedience and submission to the externals of religion or in heart obedience and submission to the internals of righteousness. Obviously, he goes on to say, true Christians will not reject the true way of salvation, but they confuse themselves and others when they try to live by works because the mark of true discipleship is continuing obedience to Christ. The security of salvation from the divine side of, is guaranteed by God to his own, but the human side is manifested by perseverance in grace. Contrary, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, contrary to justifying grace, sanctifying grace is interruptible. That's what John MacArthur said, is that at this Falling from grace, if a person is a true believer, they can't, they're not losing their salvation, but they're losing out on so much of what God wants to do in their lives through the power of the Holy Spirit because they're trying to perfect themselves, sanctify themselves, mature themselves in their own strength, in their own um, fleshly abilities by keeping the law or keeping some other form of law whether it's a list of rules and regulations or rights and wrongs of some, some form that are not clearly taught in the Scripture. Now, that's not to say, and Paul is certainly not saying, nor am I, that there aren't things we are, that are right and wrong. Not at all. But Paul is saying, and I hope that I'm communicating the same thing, and that is that we walk by the Holy Spirit, 
And again, Paul will go on to say this, but I want to say it now because I don't want confusion. We walk by the Holy Spirit's power as we submit to the Holy Spirit and then walk in obedience to what he has revealed in his word, again, through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not about making a list of rules and regulations saying, well, if you dress this way, if you have your hair this way, if you do this and do that, external things, that makes you a, a mature person. Uh, you know, and if you don't do other things, and we come up with these lists of traditional rules and regulations that are not clearly taught in the scripture as commands or imperatives to the body of Christ. The things that we are clearly taught are things that we are, are um, called to as believers, but they do not make us a Christian or non-Christian. And that's where the rub is so many times for people is we determine a person's salvation based on whether they keep certain rules and regulations. Our salvation is based upon Jesus Christ and him alone. And he sets us free from any of these external things that would bind us in that way. Then in five and six, coming back to the text, in five and six, Paul is contrasting this, this going after an external thing like circumcision and those who walk by faith. He says, for we, through the Spirit by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Instead of working for it, we're waiting for it in Christ. And then he says, for in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. He's saying this is simply an external act that has no spiritual bearing. Yeah, for the, for the Israelites in the Old Testament, it was a mark of the covenant with God, not the means of that covenant. They got it confused. At some point in the process, they got confused. The Judaizers were confused. Many in that day, Jews in that day, had gotten confused. Somewhere from the time of the prophets, and that 400 years of silence where God did not speak through a prophet and then the time of Christ, somewhere in that process, they confused all of this. And they began to believe that by keeping the law, that made them right with God. Instead of the keeping of the law was evidence of their covenant relationship that God established, which was always by faith. So there was confusion. And Paul is saying, in Christ, we are set free. There is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. It doesn't mean anything. But faith working through love. In other words, he says, there is an outward manifestation of genuine faith. And it's not the keeping of the law as there's rules and regulations. It is love, which Paul will go on to say, is the fulfillment ultimately of the law. It's faith working through love. And we're going to talk more about love as we look at the passage next week. But um, but want to want to point that out. Here, go on to verse seven. And from seven through 12, Paul now turns his attention to the false teachers and to their teaching. And he gives us uh, basically uh, a couple of characteristics, if you will, of false teaching, and then what the end result will be for those who promote false teaching. Verse seven, he says, you were running well says to the Galatians, man, you were running well. When I was with you, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Again, Paul is not opposed to obedience, but obedience through faith in Jesus Christ, not obedience to an external list of rules that will somehow commend you to God. I hope you understand the difference there. 
It says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. I want to say this about false teaching. It's very persuasive. Why? Primarily because it appeals to our flesh. Because false teaching tells you and I that we can do something to commend ourselves to God. That we, we feel good, we feel justified in ourselves when we do something, right? When we've done something to earn it. Just like when we sin and screw up, we want to somehow make up for it rather than simply accepting the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus Christ. We feel as if, if, if we do some kind of form of penance, if you will, um, that we will somehow make up for what we've done wrong. And, and the message of Scripture is you can never do anything to make up for what you've done wrong. Now, yes, Jesus told the woman who was caught in adultery, go and sin no more. But he said, he, you know, who's here to cast, you know, where's all your accusers? Have they, have, has anyone here, uh, you know, left? And there wasn't. Why? Because we've all fallen short. We need the forgiveness of Christ. And then we get up and we walk in repentance. Again, not as a penance, not as a way of making up for it. No, but as a way of walking in gratitude for what Christ has done for us. It's all about the motivation of our heart and our understanding of, of what Christ has done for us. But it's very persuasive because it appeals to us that we can do something uh, to commend ourselves to God. The second thing is, it's not only persuasive, but it's pervasive. Very pervasive. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Just as a little bit of leaven put into the dough pervades the entire lump of dough. This is the way it is with this false teaching. You cannot take a little bit of it and incorporate it in. That's what they were doing. And that's what Paul is, is commending them against, if you will. He's saying, you can't take a little piece of the law and add it to the gospel and think that you haven't messed up the gospel because it messes up the whole thing. You are either justified and sanctified by faith in Christ or you're justified and sanctified by uh, keeping the law. You cannot have it both ways. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. Either love the one and hate the other, you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot have it both ways. That's what Paul is getting at with the Galatians. You can't pick and choose and grab things from here. And it, you've got to embrace the gospel and all of it, that it is by faith alone plus nothing for your salvation and your sanctification is the work of Christ in you as you submit to the Holy Spirit and you walk in obedience to the truth of his word. It's not about keeping laws in your own strength. And then Paul says in verse 10, I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view. They haven't given into it yet. Paul knows these people. He's the one that shared the gospel originally with them. He says, I have confidence in you in the Lord, not in their flesh, but in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, that you will embrace what I'm teaching you. And he says, the one who is disturbing you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. Whoever it is, and this should be a warning to us. Certainly, those of us who teach, that we need to be careful that we are teaching what God has said in his word and not adding to that any rules and regulations or obligations to put on people's backs was what the Pharisees were doing. 
You're adding to that. And Paul says, he will bear his judgment. And this is the, the end result of false teaching and teachers. They will be judged. It may not come now, but the judgment is coming. And this is important because if we follow that, we're, we're lumped into that too, into that judgment. So we've got to be careful that what we believe, we don't follow a person, no matter how charismatic they may be, no matter how persuasive they may be, we don't follow people. We follow Christ and him alone and we follow his word. Paul himself, the only time Paul ever told people to follow him is when he said, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Not to follow him, but follow Christ because he was pointing them to Christ. And we've got to do the same thing. And then Paul says, I, brethren, but if I, brethren, if I preach circumcision, still preach circumcision, they were saying, that, well, this is what Paul is teaching because Paul used to teach that as, an, as a Pharisee, but he's no longer teaching circumcision. He says, if I'm still preaching that, why am I persecuted? Because the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. Why is the cross a stumbling block? Well, it is for those who want to keep the law. Why? Because the cross says, that's all gone. Christ has satisfied the demands of the law. Through his death on the cross, he satisfied the judgment of God, the condemnation of God, and he fulfilled the, the requirements of the law and so the cross becomes nothing. And to, to quote the Apostle Paul, what does he say about, about the, um, the cross and uh, the law as a means of justification? Again, he says in verse 21 of chapter 3, If a law has been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. And then again, to quote him in chapter 2, verse 21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. There is no need for the cross. If there is a law, if we can keep a law that will commend us to God, there's no need for the cross. And I submit to you that the same is true for sanctification, that we grow in the Lord through submission to Christ and his spirit, and then walking in obedience through that submission. It's not by keeping some external rules and regulations. This is where legalism comes in. And we've got to be very careful of that. And the last thing Paul says in this section, and it's pretty harsh, he says, would that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. He's referring to a, a pagan uh, ritual of castration. Because in, in those pagan views, they believed that this was ultimate dedication to their gods, that they would castrate themselves and they would be fully devoted. They would not be um, tempted in any way by, by women or anything like that if they, if they did this. And so Paul says, if they want to be dedicated to God, if they think by keeping external rules is the way to commend themselves to God, why not go all the way? Be completely devoted uh, in that way, in a physical way. And, uh, and so Paul, maybe using a little bit of humor, but I don't think he was, he was necessarily all humorous here. He's saying, I, and, and, and maybe, and I don't, again, I can't get into the head of Apostle Paul. I know why he said everything he said, but possibly here, 
He's thinking in terms of reproduction. He said that they would even mutilate themselves, that they can't reproduce. And not only reproduce physically, but even spiritually, that the application would be that they would not continue to reproduce this kind of garbage that they were promoting, that you have to be circumcised in order to be uh, a follower of Christ uh, as a keeping of the law. And again, he says, circumcision as an act means nothing. It's what you're using it for to try and commend yourself to God. And so, next week we're going to get into the, the second and third reason why we must walk in freedom with Christ, or freedom, freedom of Christ, and that is because Christ has called us to freedom and because Christ has provided us the means of freedom. We're going to talk more about those things next week. But this week, our reason is because Christ has set us free. Jesus said in John 8, if the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. And what we need to understand is that we've been set free from, a, from any external things for justification or for sanctification. We have been set free. And next week, we're going to talk more about what that freedom looks like as we walk in it. Uh, but we indeed have been set free. Let us walk in that freedom as we follow Christ and submit to his spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity, again, to look at your word. Um, to try and understand what Paul is saying here and how that affects our lives. Lord, I understand this is sometimes confusing because we have mixed over so many years, we've mixed the gospel and external things. And some of those external things are things that are laid out in scripture and we ought to be living according to them, but we've been trying to do some of those things in our own fleshly abilities rather than submitting to Christ. And so ultimately what it comes down to for us is that we would be crucified with Christ so that it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. This is what you call us to. And so Lord, I pray that you will work in each of our hearts and lives to bring this about. And Father, I pray that you will take what I have said and you will use this, that anything I may have said that was confusing, Lord, would be easily forgotten and only those things which are clear according to your word would be remembered and applied to our lives. And we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name, amen. God bless.